What up, guys? Welcome back to episode nine of the Desk Math Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, David. Today, I'm chatting with my buddy, Adam McCluskey from the PT Initiative. And Adam and I actually go way back. We've been chatting on Instagram since he was in his physical therapy school and since I started my page in 2016. An interesting story, actually, when um, I first discovered his page, he was one of the first physiotherapists on Instagram to actually be making video tutorials. And at first, he didn't. I always thought he didn't have as many followers as he deserves, and now he has 85,000 followers, and he's graduated from UCLA with his doctorate in physical therapy. So I did a quick intro. He's going to come on and just tell us a little bit about himself. Yeah, thanks, David. Um, yeah, we do go way back from the early Instagram days. I remember when there weren't as many PT rehab pages in the space, and now it uh, kind of feels like there's a ton. But it's good. It's just more uh, people to get the info out there. But yeah, we've uh, we've been kind of chatting back and forth for a few years now, and it's been cool to you know kind of see each other grow and get our pages a little bit bigger and everything like that. So. Um, yeah, like you said, I uh, started the page when I was in physical therapy school. So I was out in Southern California um, getting my doctorate in PT, and that's kind of when I started the page. And um, I guess it was mostly just kind of the initial part was I was, I was a little, I was a personal trainer before going to PT school, and uh, I was learning a lot of cool stuff that I felt like I wish I would have known back then. And uh, you know, and I was kind of in the, the phase where I was learning a ton and I wanted to at least, you know, condense it for myself so that I could understand it better and um, at least share a few things along the way that I've learned and hopefully other people would find it helpful. So I kind of started the page to start sharing that. And then I guess, you know, people started finding it useful and that was pretty cool to be able to communicate with a lot of people and, uh, you know, hear that things were helpful. So it just kind of, you know, snowballed from there and kept running with it and now it's uh it's pretty cool to see where it's gotten to today yeah, it's pretty cool how things change and how like everyone's doing videos now and there's a lot of therapists out there but it's pretty cool how you have that background in personal training where a lot of physios don't always have the biggest strength training background and then you get personal trainers who don't have the biggest background in mobility and rehab and stuff like that so it's interesting how you've kind of evolved from a personal trainer into i guess a sports physiotherapist yeah, it's been uh it's been cool to blend those two things and I think, you know, that's partially um part of the, you know, the success of the page if you will is just um I guess being able to come from both perspectives and kind of add some insight um with background in both. Um so yeah, that's uh it's been it's been cool to see and I and I definitely am thankful for the days that I did, you know, personal training and strength coaching and um I think it was definitely a big help in kind of developing into the physical therapist I am now. What has been the biggest change in your mindset since you've, uh, I guess, since you shifted from a trainer and finished PT school and to where you are now? Do you see things differently in terms of how you personally train yourself as well as how you design rehab programs? Absolutely. I feel like, you know, over the last few years, I feel like every year I've kind of at least, at least shifted my mindset in some way. And um, honestly, I think that's a good thing. I think that's how we should all be is looking to what's the current best evidence now, what's the best way I should be doing this. And I think if you're, you're not changing, you're kind of falling behind, but, um, yeah, I think everything, I guess when I was a personal trainer and I, everything was a little bit oversimplistic, I think would be my biggest thing. And I think being able to 
come up with a well-strategized uh, plan for people and kind of seeing it from several different perspectives. And I think I would get into this rut of, as a trainer, I'd, I would base the success of a workout based on just how sweaty someone got or how out of breath they got. And yes, while metabolic conditioning is a part of a, a workout or part of a training plan, there's just so many more facets to it. And I think understanding movement quality, um, you know, what each exercise, what its ultimate goal is, how it can vary things based on positioning of hips and knees and ankles and shoulders and how that actually impacts the exercise itself. There's just so many different ways to approach a workout. And I think that's where my mindset has shifted. And I guess I've, I've learned more and just had to uh, adapt to it. So yeah, I think it's, it's changed a ton since I started out, which, um, you know, I hope, hopefully that's kind of shown in the work I've put out on Instagram. I want it to continually get better and more sophisticated and more helpful. So yeah, it definitely has changed since I started out. It's cool because at first when I was a trainer too, I always, I, it wasn't, I always had the movement first approach, but you, there'd always be like that training the muscles, right? Everyone's focused on training the muscles, but we don't always focus on the movement first approach. And as I've gone through, even just learning on Instagram and talking with you and other therapists, a lot of it's not finding out when designing the rehab program, what you can't do, but it's all about modifying again, like you said, the knee, ankle, hip joints, like ways you can modify the exercise and still work through a progression in a, in a pain-free range of motion. For example, if you have low back pain, you can do like a deficit uh, kettlebell deadlift. It's about finding something that works for you. Yeah, hundred percent. It's uh, it's definitely. I think everyone tends to, if you know, they have a shoulder injury, then they just only do lower body exercises, or you know, vice versa. And uh, I think that's that's a huge issue. And I think it just comes from, you know, not. It's just kind of a not knowing what's okay to do, what's not okay to do, what's making it worse, what's making it better. And I think that's what a lot of my patients and clients come to say. Like, I don't know if I'm doing this is making it better or worse. And so I think that's been a big shift and it's important to know. And um, you're absolutely right. You kind of have to find modifications, that movement first idea of, I want to maximize what someone can do. Um, you know, there's there's been this kind of push for just, you just need to rest, 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 rest. That's what, you know, all the, all the MDs that send patients my way, it's just, they've been told to rest or completely isolate movement. And that's just, uh, it's just not the, always the most effective way. And I think uh, my job is just to kind of find, okay, where can you move pain-free? How can we re reintroduce movement that kind of speeds up your recovery that also is not, you know, hindering you with, you know, increasing irritability, but also finding ways that you can move that are safe, pain-free, and get you back to what you're doing quicker. You know, I think that's really what it's about because a lot of times in the past when I was even going to physio uh, four or five years ago when I hurt my shoulder, it would just be like, rest, rest, rest. And then when I asked them, what should I do versus not do, they were like, oh, you're smart. You know how to work out. You'll... And then the next week I would come back and be like, I, I re-aggravated my shoulder because you didn't tell me what to avoid versus what to do. And it's kind of through that experience I've learned a lot about the rehab process and what works for me and learn things like tissue tolerance and when to rest, when not to rest, and really teaches you a lot about how to listen to your body through your own injuries. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge thing. And, um, you know, if you, if you rest an injury, if it's an overuse thing or just an, an irritation of a muscle or tendon, you're right, rest will help it feel better. But I think 
where, you know, any rehab professional or physio or anybody, any of their main jobs is going to be to help you understand maybe why that pain developed in the first place and then how you can alter movement or adjust adjust your training volume so that that doesn't come back when you return to doing what you want to do. So I think it just that's where a lot of rehab just cuts off too early. And then there's this gap, especially with people who are active and fit and like to work out. There's this gap between finishing quote unquote PT and then being able to do what you want to do without having pain. And so I think that's what you just described is you kind of fell in that gap and then you got hurt again. And, you know, and that's where I think we could all do a better job of getting into that gap there and helping people fully transition back to what they want to do. Yeah, I really like what you said about people feel like it's only getting done with PT. But really, when you think about it, you're not just rehabbing when you're injured. Even after any workout, you're always in a state of rehab, whether it's like a micro rehab, you're just recovering in between workouts, or it's like a long-term rehab thing. The muscles are always stressed in their rehab, even when they're growing, even when you're building muscle, even when you're losing weight. You're still, if you come into the mindset that you're always rehabbing because you don't need to necessarily connotate rehab with the negative associations of, oh, there has to be pain. You're, it, even doing your mobility is, I guess it is prehab, like preventative, but you're still always in that mindset of, I want to improve myself. I want to make sure I'm stronger. So I think like a mindset shift is really a big thing that people need to take on because it doesn't need to have this negative connotation. It can just be, you can make it fun, definitely, with a lot of the mobility exercises. I think the big thing you hit on there was people kind of taking ownership of their movement, their training plan, what they want to do. I think, uh, you know, them having the idea that they're actively involved and they kind of know what to do with, you know, their recovery, their, I guess, quote unquote, prehab, their workouts, that sort of thing. I think that's the big thing to take away is just kind of empowering people to have the tools they need to understand how their body works, how their body recovers and what they need to do to stay at uh, kind of their best, I guess, their best in their best shape. So when you're designing your rehab program for your clients, do you at first like consider all these like social factors and psychological factors, like talking to them, getting them to understand their pain? Or is that kind of blended into when you're considering all factors for designing the program? Yeah, I definitely do. I, um, I think that's where I spend a lot of the time at the very first meeting with a new patient is just, I just let them talk for a while. So I want, I guess the main, I, to start with, I want to see how do they feel about their injury? And so that seems kind of strange to hear, but some people come in and, you know, they, they're kind of downplaying it. Like, ah, it's just an ankle sprain. It's not a big deal. I'll be back within a couple weeks. Or they just feel like defeated by the pain. They don't know what to do with it. They feel frustrated because maybe they've seen uh, three other different, uh, you know, medical providers and nothing's helped. So I have to kind of know where they're coming from in that standpoint. Um, and that's just going to basically shape how I interact with them, how I talk with them, how I progress exercises, how we do like patient education and kind of talk about what's going on. So that's really like when I think about psychosocial factors and things, that's kind of where I like to definitely start and kind of see, you know, how do they feel about their injury? What beliefs do they have? Do they feel like this will never go away or do they feel like, you know, they'll definitely bounce back? That's because that plays a huge role in, um, you know, actually how well they recover. Um, and then, you know, how long has the issue been around? Are they the type of person that, you know, if anything hurts, they're going to take three months off or they the type of person that they're an 
eight out of 10 pain, but they're just going to push through because they think that's what, you know, being tough is about. So, you know, any, anywhere on that spectrum is going to change how I give them home exercises. If they're a push through type of person, I'm going to talk to them about kind of lowering their volume and give them maybe two or three different exercises to do. Whereas if they're a, you know, a rest person, they're just going to avoid anything. I'm going to really encourage them to kind of test out the foot and ankle or whatever injuries involved and, you know, kind of start to, you know, reintroduce some movement there and basically build some confidence with their, you know, where their pain level's at and how much they can actually do. So anything like that, I'm definitely going to focus on as far as kind of their mindset and, you know, where their, their head's at with their injury. What are some of the implications of kind of pushing through when you have some maybe like a three out of 10 pain when you're exercising or you warm up and you feel a little stiff and it's a little uncomfortable and kind of pushing through those aches that you think are kind of normal or you think they're going to go away? With those types of things, and it, you know, it really does depend on, you know, if there's an acute injury or if this is kind of a, you know, just kind of a more chronic ache or pain. I think it's always important to, I like to talk to the patient about how, you know, how, how normal or not normal any of these things are. And I want to make sure that they're not kind of coming from, doesn't matter if it hurts or not, I've got to get it done, you know, like go through the workout. If it's a, one of those things where someone's just feeling stiff, I, one thing I like to talk about is, you know, as you're going through, say it's a, a, a certain shoulder exercise, if the first two or three you kind of feel something, it just doesn't feel like smooth or it feels a little sore, I kind of just always advise, you know, try out a set of, you know, six or eight and keep track of as you go through those reps, does that pain or discomfort, does it start to decrease? Does it stay the same or does it get worse? And I think that's kind of where I like to give people some idea of what to do with those little small aches and pains. If it's one of those things that the, that it actually decreases after the first one or two reps, and then by the fifth or sixth rep, you're not really even feeling any of that discomfort. You know, I've got really no problem with them working into those exercises because sometimes it's more of just your body has to accommodate to a certain movement that it maybe isn't used to getting into or it's just not sure about. Um, so as long as that kind of subsides and gets a little bit less, I've got no problem with them working into those things. But if it's something that they're doing, you know, as they go through the set, the pain gets worse and worse and worse, it's definitely going to be an irritating factor and that's setting them back more so than uh, pushing them forward. Now, what are some things you do to bridge the gap from the rehab stage back into the performance stage? Would you give them some sort of like routine that they can follow to work on those areas that have been like, that, say it was a knee, for example, would you give them some like single leg balance stuff to work on during the season to make sure things don't flare up again? Or obviously it would be individual for the athlete, but what are some of the main kind of concepts of bridging that gap back to performance? The main issue I see with that idea of bridging the gap and back in rehab and performance is I just think the it's a little bit about what's done in rehab. And I think when someone quote unquote graduates from PT and I have a person right now that I'm seeing that kind of has had experienced this issue where nothing really hurt with PT, but the PT exercises were not any way in any way a mirror of what they needed to do for their sport or their um, activity. So and this person, it was just working out like weightlifting with a shoulder injury. And, you know, all the rehab just encompassed, you know, light TheraBand work and 
you know, never really any weights were involved when his goal was to get back to working out with weights. And so, you know, there was no real actual preparation for what he wanted to do. So I think sometimes even taking out just specific exercises, can the rehab plan actually integrate weights and in at least some way mirror what they're going to need to do once they finish, quote unquote, finish physical therapy. Um, so it's, you know, and I think that's where it gets back to that point where, you know, I don't know if it's a lack of training and strength conditioning. I don't know if it's just lack of equipment at certain facilities, but that's one thing that, you know, I enjoy about my clinic that I'm at is we have a, a wider range of weights, barbells, everything. So if someone wants to get back to working out, say, uh, an overhead press, I've got a landmine press that I can kind of ease them back into barbell overhead pressing with. Whereas if I just had a green TheraBand doing, you know, external rotations, I'd have no idea if their shoulder's ready for it because I haven't seen it. So I think that's the big thing as far as, you know, bridging that gap is in the clinic, I want to observe them doing something very, very close to what they actually want to do once they leave PT, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's super cool how you kind of consider those factors. A lot of times, even on, especially on social media, people always be like, TheraBand, TheraBand, do your mobility. But oftentimes you really don't hear people talking about the loading aspect and how eventually, like the TheraBand stuff is good to strengthen like very specific muscles and improve your external rotation. But then you really have to take it to the next level and you have to start loading it. And I really like the idea of how you're talking about the landmine because that's one of the uh, progressions I use too. When I was rehabbing my shoulder and for some of my friends when I'm helping them, you start with something light. Like I remember I had uh, some bicep like irritation in my shoulder last year and I started with the bands. Then I started working into slowly pushing that, that barbell up and then working on the eccentric down and eventually I got back to dumbbell, flat dumbbell press and eventually back into barbell press. But again, it's a very slow process. It was over, I would say six to eight months. I'm slowly introducing, increasing the load. So it still always feels like you are working out. It doesn't always feel like you're rehabbing. It just feels like you're just trying some different exercises when you have that approach. Yeah, I mean, they, you you hit it 100% right there. And it's, you know, even that's when it should look like, you know, if you're in a rehab program, quote unquote rehab, it should start to really look like just a workout. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're you're paying no regard to what exercises you're doing, but you know, I, I want people to kind of understand this is what we're working on. This is why we're doing these exercises. And you can, we can get back in the gym. There's still maybe some modifications on overall volume, uh, type of exercise, weight, tempo, those sort of things that will modify. But it should look like a workout eventually, or, you know, you just, you're kind of missing the boat there. And I think going back to the, uh, you know, the background in personal training and strength coaching, I think that's where a lot of that comes in handy is you've got You've got a arsenal of exercises that you know how to, you know, know how to implement and where they transition as far as, you know, on the progression stage, how, how much easier or harder are they? And then you can mess with tempos, volume, that sort of thing. So you have a better understanding of those aspects. And so it kind of helps with developing that rehab program where they're getting back to, you know, some, some weighted stuff to kind of transition their rehab into a, like a performance or strength training program. I find one of the issues with not rehab specifically, but with strength training is you'll get a lot of people who are new to the gym or they've come off a three month hiatus and they don't really earn their progressions in the sense that they think they can just squat, bench, deadlift and overhead press with barbells when they can't really move or they haven't mastered the prerequisite progressions like a dumbbell press, 
or even they just don't have proper overhead mobility. But you'll often see a lot of high-risk people for injury who'll do like overhead press and they just don't have the range of motion. I think that, I don't think it's specifically the issue is to blame on them, but it's the fact that they don't understand the importance of mastering the progressions and really earning your range of motion. Because a lot of these injuries, like the exercise, a lot of these exercises with the barbell, they're very advanced, but people think they're very, because they're compounds that you have to do them, but really you just need to find what's best for your body. Completely. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's not something that we should, you know, say that any exercise is bad. You know, I think that's when, you know, when you go into some trouble with, where a lot of people say, you know, I, I went in the gym and I did deadlifts or I did shoulder presses and I hurt myself. So therefore that exercise is bad. Well, maybe it's not. And maybe it's just, you didn't have, like you were talking about those movement prerequisites, you know, with the overhead press, maybe your thoracic extension was um, very limited and you didn't really have much scapular control to push from. And that was kind of what contributed to, you know, your movement mechanics affecting, you know, the injury. And so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that exercise that was the issue. It's just that you weren't ready for that exercise based on your prerequisites. And so that's where it comes back to modifications as well Is you know, what ways can you incorporate a little mobility work? Can you incorporate some more targeted activation exercises? Um, and then what kind of easier progressions can you do to work back into that overhead press because, you know, a lot of times you'll see somebody who's been training for 15 years and then, you know, they put on Instagram, they're doing a strict overhead press and they've got, you know, 135 pounds, 155 pounds and it, you know, they've got the physique you want. And then you, you say, well, they're doing it. So I need to do that. But that's kind of where, you know, I think your page and I hope my page are, are doing a good job of saying, that's not a bad exercise, but there might be a few things we could work on to optimize that movement to make you ready for, I guess, the demand and load that that exercise requires. Yeah, the strict over the strict barbell press is a really good example because for two reasons, it's very advanced, but it's also kind of closed chain because your hands are locked there. So you have to have a, you have to be able to engage your lats and really externally rotate at the shoulders to hold that bar there because. If you just kind of relax your arms, you're gonna, your shoulders are gonna kind of internally rotate as you press overhead. So, versus like a dumbbell press where you have a more free range of motion. So, definitely mastering that is really important. You get a bit more kind of scapular control with dumbbells. So, another important consideration. For sure. Yeah. I think, um, you know, and that's a, it's a good example of just saying, you know, if you've had issues in the past with a strict overhead press with the barbell, um, you know, even something like a half kneeling dumbbell overhead press, like a single arm dumbbell overhead press, where you can keep your elbows a little more 45 degrees in that scapular plane. You've got a little bit more control of where your shoulder's at. You know, that's a great way to kind of ease into overhead pressing. So, you know, it's kind of one of those things where if you have had pain with strict barbell overhead press, you don't need to not lift shoulders. You just need to know what to do and how to progress it. And so, um, and honestly, that's a, that's a huge part of what I do every day is just exactly what I just told you as far as finding progressions to ease back in. And I think that's where, you know, sometimes, uh, PTs and physios kind of, you know, over diagnose things and, you know, maybe it's just, a 
they did too much too soon and you just need to show them progressions and, and kind of appropriately load them back into it. Um, more so than, you know, giving them a label and telling them that they need to, you know, not do this. And, you know, I think kind of working with that person in front of you and saying, well, how about let's take it back a few steps, start with these and be able to explain why you're starting with those and then progress them from there, I think is a, um, kind of how I like to treat and, uh, especially with a more active population, I think I've found some success with that. Yeah, definitely. It's really important to always have that educational component to the rehab. I remember a lot of times people would always ask me, like when I was working as a PT, they'd always ask me like, and be concerned with the diagnosis and think that just having that understanding will make them feel better. And while that may or may not be true, I'd always find myself telling them the importance that they just need to get stronger. They need to start moving because a lot of the, the population I worked with as a PTA were the deskbound population. So they weren't the most inclined to exercise and it takes a lot of like convincing them. But it really like a lot of the advice I was giving, you just need to focus on the moving patterns. You just need to get stronger overall and just more active with your life. Yeah, it's a great, it's great advice. And I think um, it's an example of how people you know, always want to make things completely structural. And, you know, and I think I, I understand where people come from as far as wanting a diagnosis. You know, you have an issue and you want to know why it's there. And sometimes ambiguity in, in the medical world is, is not, uh, not accepted too well. But, you know, sometimes there is some ambiguity. And I think it's one of those things where I always kind of tell patients if they, you know, they want a hard diagnosis on something, you know, and they were like, well, maybe I should get an MRI to see. And I like to say, I don't, you know, even if you had an MRI and it showed, you know, this versus this, it may not change a whole lot about how we approach your rehab program. And uh, just kind of saying like, either way, we need to address uh, lack of strength here, lack of mobility here, improve overall tolerance in this area, no matter what your injury is, that's going to be kind of our plan of attack. And I think that usually helps um, some people to kind of at least see it from that perspective. But yeah, you're right. I mean, getting people moving, getting stronger, it's hard to hard to go wrong with that, especially to start out with. So when you're coming back from injury, say you're past like the early stages of the exercises for your rehab program, when you're starting to feel better, your pain's reduced, you're getting back into a little bit of strength training. How do you avoid that that kind of tipping point when you get so excited, you feel like you're unstoppable and you end up accidentally doing too much? Like, are there some sort of considerations in terms of, I know in rehab, you never want to like push it to a hundred percent, but when you're kind of making those way back, like, would you suggest things like leaving a few reps in the tank or just slowing down your progression stuff like that? Well, I think at that stage, it's, it's a little bit, even what I talked about earlier of kind of knowing what type of person that it is. If it's the type of person that is always going to do more than you say, or the person who's kind of terrified to get back into it. I think knowing that helps. Um, so that's why, you know, there's never anything super black and white because people are, are very different. So if it's, you know, say it's someone who likes to, you know, push through and what you kind of have a feeling once they get back in the gym and feel like they're, they feel like they're hundred percent when they may not be is I like to just specify very clearly, you know, these motions are fine. And then I list off maybe three, you know, depends on where they are in their stage. Maybe it's anything, they're not ready for a lot of loaded overhead or like, you know, any dead hang things like on the shoulder. So 
I, you know, I can just say like no pull-ups and no overhead pressing past a certain point. And, you know, I'll send them an actually like a specific workout program to go through. So depends on the person, but I like to be as specific on one, what they can't do that would aggravate their symptoms, but also I want to give them, here's a workout plan with reps and sets, reps and reps and sets, excuse me, um, that you can actually do and kind of give them something tangible that they know that they can work through. But, you know, also talking to them about, look, we've come this far. There is kind of a, a load ceiling that you have right now. And I don't want to blow past it and take two steps back. And I think they can appreciate that as long as you can explain that we're not just still resting 100% that you're giving them something that they can do. And then also emphasizing what they shouldn't do at this point and why. I think those are the kind of the big things I like to consider. Yeah, because it really shows you care for them when you're not just prescribing random exercises that may or may not be specific to them, but they can really see it and they really start to feel better because as a physio or a trainer, anyone helping with rehab, you have this connection with the individual you're working with. And when they see that you're actually like explaining things and you actually care about them and you treat them as a person and you don't just treat the injury, like you're treating them first and helping them get back to what they want, oftentimes they have a huge shift in their mindset. Yeah, I completely agree. You got to, um, you, it's the person in front of you. I mean, nobody's, there's nobody that's, there's nobody cookie cutter. You know, you've got to see the person in front of you, let them know. I think people just appreciate when you talk to them like a person and you can just lay out, this is why we're doing this. This is why we're not doing this. I understand that, um, you know, getting back to, you know, whatever, you know, doing 10 pull-ups is your goal. And I, I know I know that and I acknowledge that. And here's why we can do these things. Here's why we can't do these things. And here's how we're going to get you back to it. I think people appreciate when you can kind of convey in normal terms what the plan is and why we're doing what we're doing. I think people are a lot more compliant and a lot more willing to listen than if you just kind of give off a vibe of, you know, we'll get back to it. And you can't really convey anything to them. And then it just feels like you're not invested. And then there's, they're not going to be invested if you're not invested and it doesn't feel like you are. So I think it's definitely reciprocal. And I think patients and clients always know when, uh, when you kind of know where we're at and where we're going versus when you're just kind of guessing and don't really care. So you're, you're hundred percent right. It definitely makes a difference. I love your example of pull-ups because honestly, they're one of the most commonly un performed wrong exercises like you'll see so many different ways of people doing it wrong people who don't have the over mobility people who are just using their arms people are kind of doing the kipping pull-ups the c-shaped pull-ups there's there the, i honestly every day i see people doing pull-ups wrong and i think it's a great example of ways you need your prerequisite shoulder mobility especially in scapular control because a lot of times you'll just see people kind of like rolling their head over the bar or they're rounding their shoulders and just pulling up and you won't even see their scapula move like You'll see some people at the gym doing chin-ups and your, their shoulders aren't moving. It's like all biceps. I think it also has to do with the fact that people think it's working their arms, but there's a lot of cool exercises that I know you've shared for overhead scapular control stuff like scapular pull-ups, scapular push-ups, and then even proper shoulder mechanics with things like lat pull-down. Like you could sit there and just do some depressions or you could do some with a cable on, kind of in your hand standing up. You could do some standing shoulder circles. A lot of great exercises you can do to improve your pull-ups. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's definitely a, uh, a tough exercise. And I think it beget, it gets to be an issue when people, 
there's a lot of all those things you were saying, like kind of understanding overhead mobility, scapular control, being able to actually know what it feels like to depress your scapula. And I think that's a, a something that most people in the gym haven't ever done or haven't tried to appreciate. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that have worked out for a long time and have actually invested into into it and understanding what they're doing have kind of learned that. But um, I think it's important starting out, you know, I don't know so much that, you know, doing variations of pull-ups is always bad, but I think it's, it's nice to have, be able to demonstrate that you have the foundations of knowing what scapular depression is, having full overhead mobility. I think having those basics is important first before you start messing with variations. So I would, I always like to see, can someone dead hang from the bar and then just depress their scapula and kind of lift their body up without their elbows bending, you know, and that's a lot of people can't do that. And so before we move on to different variations of pull-ups, I want to make sure they can do that. They understand what that movement is. We start with different, maybe easier progressions of that using a band or a lat pull down bar. Yeah. Like you said, I think it's, there's so many issues, mechanics of the shoulder to look at and to feel like you've mastered and understand. So I think it's, if they can demonstrate that they know all the components of a solid pull-up, then they can kind of have the freedom to, you know, if they want to move into more kipping pull-ups or they want to move into more like hollow body holds or anything like that. I think I like to always coach, do you have the basics? Do you know what the prerequisites are? Do you know what that feels like? And to have that control, and then we can work on kind of, you know, getting fancy with it. What are some of the most common things you see in terms of like shoulder mechanics or in say imbalances in terms of injuries or stuff like that. Like, are there any common trends you see that people need to work on? Or obviously it's very individual, but are there things like that you see in certain populations that are consistent? Yeah, for sure. I think um, a little bit of what I hit on just a second ago is just when I, I guess just an understanding of what the shoulder, especially the shoulder blade, but also kind of the shoulder blade rotator cuff, like what those actually do and kind of what movement of those areas actually encompasses. And I think I do a lot of time starting with very small motions and kind of just seeing where they naturally get most of their motion at the shoulder. So, um, you know, obviously there is a, a pretty big emphasis towards, you know, engaging the upper trap. And I think, you know, upper trap catches a lot of heat. It's not always bad, but I think when you do want to start to correct out of that is if, you know, you put them in positions where I want more lower and mid trap working and they just can't do it. Um, I think that is, a, it's definitely a huge issue I see. Um, so just kind of engagement of those other shoulder stabilizers, whether it's serratus anterior, lower trap, middle trap, those are definitely some areas that I see. I guess it's just, it kind of comes back to, I don't know that they're necessarily like weak in a sense. It's just, they don't, people don't know how to engage those muscles. and. So I like to start with teaching them how to engage those muscles, what, what movements actually do bring in those movement patterns and um, want them to kind of see what that feels like. And then we kind of integrate it into more larger movements, but definitely those muscles, uh, thoracic spine mobility. Um, if you don't have the thoracic spine extension, just, it just changes how your shoulder blade sits on the rib gauge. Um, when you go into the overhead position, you're just not going to have as full of a scapular motion if your thoracic spine can't extend. 
um, it just is going to run out of room earlier and that just leads to other issues. Um, so thoracic spine is a huge thing. I think people extend through their low back a lot with doing any kind of standing shoulder work. And that's why I do a lot of prone or half kneeling work, especially starting out just to kind of take that out of it. Um, and then probably the last thing I see is just in range strength. So putting them in those in ranges of motion, people get really, really weak. And, you know, in a, in a certain population that may not be the first thing on my priority list, it might be more of mobility and just understanding what scapular retraction and depression are. But, you know, if it's a, a higher level athlete, like a CrossFit athlete that has a lot of overhead demands, you know, in range strength is something that I'm going to 100% focus on because they spend a lot of time there, especially at the shoulder. So those are, uh, those are probably the main areas that I, I like to check out and see. But like you said, it's it's very individual, and some of those things might be fine with people, and there might just be one of those. But yeah, those are the those are the main things I like to look at and uh, kind of coach for. You hit another really great point there, talking about um, the upper trap, because a lot of people see it as like an enemy. When there's a little bit of things you have to consider here, it, if you're like, if you just can't move in any of the planes, then you would wanna again, you'd wanna have some strength in the upper trap because at the end of the day. It is going to stabilize your scapula, whether it is quote unquote overactive or not. It's still important to able to control your mid traps, your lower traps, as well as your upper traps, because they all play an important role. You just don't want, a lot of times people think they're overactive because they feel a lot of perceived tension there. Like when you're slouching over the desk all day, your upper back, your necks and your traps, you kind of just feel a lot of going on there. And then people get to think that the upper traps are the enemy, but really it is working through all those ranges of emotions, like you said. Although I found, especially working with my clients for personal training, like getting people to, to move and to feel the mid and low traps can be quite difficult. You can do things like, like banded activations, but when it comes to like a, like an overhead pressing progression, like the half kneeling, it can even be hard for people to bring that shoulder down because in the sense that you have to pull the shoulder blade down while you're kind of pressing overhead to engage the lats. And a lot of people have trouble with that aspect of the overhead press. Completely. I think being able to break it down into kind of its component parts is huge. And I think that's where that plays a role. And like you said, I think people demonize the, the upper trap, but you know, and I think where it gets a lot of grief is it does, it plays a role in scapular elevation. So like shrugging your shoulder, but it also does contribute to like with your lower trap with that upward rotation, which is a motion that we need. I mean, that's what it's a motion that the shoulder needs when it comes overhead, it needs to upwardly rotate and kind of, I guess, slide out to kind of at least let the the humeral head kind of glide in the socket well and the upper trap does contribute to that um and it's part of its role and so i think to try and completely just deactivate the muscle you're kind of doing yourself a disservice so i think it's like you said it's all about a balance you have those three divisions of the trap muscle and they all need to work the issue isn't that one's working and the you know we we need it to not work we just need it to be in balance with the other muscles and be able to engage at the proper timing. So I think that's exactly what you're talking about is you need to, we need to kind of be able to break it down and do our component parts. So maybe over traps doing too much, lower traps doing a little bit, a little bit less. And so first, can we actually feel what it, it feels like to engage that lower trap and then start to integrate it as a more balanced unit. So yeah, you have to be able to, sometimes you have to take it back pretty far in a progression, make it where it seems like it's pretty easy and take it pretty far back and, and build that foundation and then go from there more so than I've just found that it's a little more useful than just hammering away at 
you know, whether it's like a lacrosse ball or dry needling or anything, just crushing the upper traps for three weeks straight, not doing any strengthening, you're not going to get anywhere. You know, not saying any manual therapy on the upper traps isn't helpful. In certain cases, it definitely is. But I think it has to be part of a plan where you're kind of decreasing that neural drive to the upper trap so that you can open up a window to kind of balance things out of the trap, trap muscle. It's crazy to see how things have shifted so much in the last five to 10 years. I remember when foam rolling first got popular and everyone thought that's all you needed to do after work, a foam roll, warm up foam roll, cool down, that it's going to like, obviously it has a neurological effect and you feel better afterwards, but I think people are missing that element you talked about is getting some strength training in there. For sure. Yeah. I feel like it's <laughs> for something that's, it's taken such a big shift over the last few years. It, I think it went from, like you said, it went from so celebrated as like just the the all the all the cure of cure of all things to you know a complete waste of time and i don't i don't really fall in either of those spectrums i mean i still there's there's times when i've told people to foam roll but i make sure to tell them there's no reason to spend excessive amount of time doing it um you know if i have somebody foam roll it's because i think you know, there is a muscle that could benefit from a little bit of decrease in that neural drive, decrease in tone, which that's what the foam roller is doing is it helps kind of, uh, you know, downregulate the nervous system in that area. So I think if you spend 20 minutes doing that, it's kind of a waste of time. Not that foam rolling in general is a waste of time. I just think to, you know, to roll out all your quads, hamstrings, TFL, you know, then you get into low back, you try to hit QL. It's, that's just not a good use of your time. Um, you know, and if there's a certain area that specifically needs some, some focus, sure. Foam roll in that for 45 seconds to a minute, get that neurological response, but then you have to follow up with some more active movement or you've just kind of been spinning your wheels. So it's not a, it's not a waste of time, but it just needs to be, I guess, a little better understood and then kind of used a little more, uh, specifically and focused. So what is your, your personal training like yourself? Do you still incorporate, say, for example, for your warm-ups, are you doing a little bit of mobility here and there? I know you do a lot of, like, the functional exercises. I saw you doing some cool lunges yesterday to warm up. Just tell us a little bit about how you structure your workouts. Yeah, for me, it's I kind of have become, just from, I guess, working out for a while and kind of knowing how the body works and things like that, I've been able to identify where my mobility issues are. and so. I usually structure it as I'll start out with if there's a certain area that needs that I'm definitely lacking that needs some focus. So if, a lot of times for me, I'll do some specific kind of lat work um, and work on a little bit of external rotation and, and lat mobility. So I'll do some more kind of, I guess, static like mobility drills for those areas. Um, you know, I'll kind of find a bench or a table, we'll get a PVC pipe and do that kind of where I'm moving into some shoulder flexion and kind of walking my arms out into that external rotation. So, you know, that's type of stretch I'll do a little bit for lats. If it's, um, you know, any different areas, I'll do a little bit of focused mobility. And then I like to do kind of a more active mobility routine. So like those, those lunges I was doing yesterday, kind of sitting into a deep lunge with a um, kind of like a world's greatest stretch variation. So for me, thoracic spine and hips, were where I needed before the workout I was doing that day, I was needing that type of motion. I had some front squats, I had um, some different lunges, things like that. So 
I choose my warm up and kind of I call it movement prep basically based on what my primary lifts are that day. I'm going to do a kind of combo active mobility type movement um, to I guess prepare me for that workout. So it's it's not so much based on you know I just want to stretch everything, foam roll everything. It's kind of based on where do I know my mobility deficits are and what primary joints and regions am I working in the workout today? And I just want to best prepare my body to, to take those movements on. So that's kind of how I structure it. So a little bit of static mobility work, um, a little bit of more active movement prep, and then I start to move into my uh, like primary lifts. There was a recent study came out that saying, I remember on some Instagram page, I think it was the strength continuum. They're talking about how there was a new study saying that stretching has zero effect for injury, rehab, blah, blah, blah. And stuff like that. And while I think that it's hard to make evidence and studies on stuff like that, I think it's it's not good to be so like so excited and enthusiastic about things like this because stretching is important. And if we if we push these studies, people are gonna have more reason not to stretch when I don't really see any harm getting some stretching in there. It may not necessarily correlate with injury or or preventing injury or even rehab, but I feel like it has an important role that people just shouldn't like throw out of the window. You don't want to be that that huge bodybuilder who just can't move and you don't need another excuse not to stretch. You're still like, you're still kind of like lubricating the fascia. You're getting the body moving and all that's really important for health. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because, you know, a lot of times I, you know, I love that the rehab training world has become, you know, such, such a big influence, like in the social media space, there's kind of just a huge body of, of information to pull from. And just the nature of social media, sometimes the more, I guess, dramatic, the more controversial a statement, the more engagement it gets. And, the you know, it's, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, engagement is huge for building a page and everything. So I think um, sometimes these claims get made and they're not very, they're not explained very well. So they're said in a controversial way. And then mm -hmm. if you call somebody out on it, they're like, oh, well, this is what I meant. And yeah, because the study I, I, I'm looking at it right now says, can training reduce your injury risk? And showing graphs is 4% for stretching. And while 4% might be little, it could actually be huge. You don't really know the duration or what went into the study. But it should just be, we should have the connotation that everyone should stretch what they need to. It's about finding what your body needs, like you mentioned with your warm-up. Finding what movement prep you need. Yeah, exactly. I think and that's where it the it's like the, everyone like sits on one end of the pendulum. You know, it's like, you need to stretch for 45 minutes or stretching is a complete waste of time. And it's like that the truth is, is somewhere in between there, you know, like we talked about, like you're, you're going to need, there's going to be certain areas where you lack some, some movement and other areas where you don't. And so it's, you know, maybe it's not that if you stretch alone, you're going to prevent injury. And if you don't stretch, you're not, there's other factors at play. And so I think, having a well-balanced program is, is huge. And I think people put these, these things up there and they try and have, make a controversial statement. And then the average person who doesn't, you know, ingest a lot of research or know how to interpret studies is just going to be left not knowing what to do with that information. And at the end of the day, I, I think anything that I post on social media, I want to be helpful, not so much just like, I don't want to be the guy that's saying stuff to just get a reaction. You know, and I think that's where a lot of people... They think they're coming from a good place and then they're really just saying stuff to get a reaction. And then, you know, just to, they'll preface it or they'll, you know, you know, put a thing at the end saying, oh, well, this is what I really meant. And it's, it's just not helpful. And I think, like you're saying, there, 
to say that stretching is completely wasteful, I think is a misleading statement. I think, you know, you should be targeted with your stretching and, and your movement prep. It should all be, have a, have a well-designed place in your program, but to make a statement like that, I think it's just kind of irresponsible. Yeah, definitely. Especially statements like people a lot of time are hating on posture and saying, oh, you can have bad posture and you cannot have pain and all these studies and blah, blah, blah. But really things like that are hard to prove and it's better to just focus on improving your mobility and your thoracic spine and your shoulders and stuff like that. I think where posture can potentially affect and modify pain is, like you said, with the overpresses, you don't have the thoracic mobility and your resting posture is so so flexed, you, you might experience some pain when overhead pressing, but that could be due to the load on top of the posture and lots of other variations. And what are your thoughts on kind of that stance of can posture affect and modify your perception of pain? Yeah, with so with posture, I like to, to think of, I guess, just what's your your normal, I guess, how much time do you spend in a prolonged position? Because here's what you know, we do know about the body and posture is that, you know, your body doesn't love sustained long periods of time stuck in one position. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no denying that to be moving and have different variability of movement and have like with your joints, you know, have full range of motion. Like that's something that, that we want. That's why I take range of motion measurements as a PT. So, you know, there's no denying that I want people to have mobility and not be kind of stuck in a certain position. I think where you get into trouble is when, you know, whatever your, your position is during the day, if it just tends, if it lends itself to being a more rounded thoracic spine, and then you spend, you know, seven to eight hours a day in that position, and then you don't really know how to prepare yourself mobility wise or anything for a workout. And then, like we said, we'll keep using the overhead press where we talked about thoracic extensions uh, a, a movement needed or the front squat thoracic extensions needed and if you've been in a position of a flexed thoracic spine for eight nine hours during the day and then you go and you put 200 pounds on a bar and do a front squat where you need some thoracic extension motion you know i mean it's it's something that your body hasn't done it's not it's not accommodated to that position you haven't moved into that position and it's going to have a tough time so i think from that perspective not that you know, it's the nature of being in a, a flexed thoracic spine position because, I mean, there's a natural, there's a natural kyphotic curve to your thoracic spine just from day one. Like that's how your bones are structured. But, you know, it's, there's a spectrum with that. So being excessively flexed and then your normal everyday requires you to get into a, you know, a quote unquote extension, which is more of a neutral part of your thoracic spine, you know, to get into that motion for your workouts, yeah, you're going to run into an issue. And so in that sense, the posture does play a, play a role. Um, so to say that it, that it doesn't matter again, is kind of misleading. So I think there's not, you know, say you created the ideal posture and then you stayed in that position for 10 hours a day, you're probably still going to have pain, but that's because you're, you've been stuck in a position for, you know, nine, 10 hours a day. So that's kind of my, that's my stance on it. So I kind of take a more indirect route of, yes, maybe something's not optimal, but can we get you into different positions, change your positions more and more frequently throughout the day? And you'll, you know, kind of see some benefit from that. Yeah, it's really interesting because I remember when I first started like researching and learning about posture 
And back then, people weren't so interested in considering the aspects of movement. I talk a lot in my book about how in yoga, we say posture is a term for various different positions. And I think if we adopt that stance that that posture is different positions and it's not just a sitting upright, it's being able to move like hip flexion, hip extension, doing a lunge, stuff like that. You should, it's okay to, to slouch a little bit. Like sometimes it's relaxing after like a hard work and not to like excessively slouch, but a little bit of rounding is natural. Because if you, if you're just pulling your shoulders back and you're sitting, forcing yourself to stay upright, that can be potentially bad at the end of the day when you're forcing it. You want to kind of be able to adopt a comfortable resting posture, but still be able to move into various positions like back bends and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's where, you know, with the studies, and I've seen a few, I know there's, there's several, and where they, they basically look at correlation. So, you know, what you would consider to be kind of a, a forward head posture, a rounded neck posture, and they're looking for correlation of, of having pain versus people that, you know, tend into those positions. And what they're not considering is people who, you know, how many of those people that have that posture that you're looking at can actually get out of that posture? And how, you know, what's their actual range of motion? How can they move from position to position? I think that's the important thing. And so to kind of correlate point A to point B without, you know, looking at how well they move from position to position, do they have full hip extension, do they have full thoracic extension, full shoulder range of motion? I think that's kind of the the variable that's that falls in the cracks. And I think that's the important one too. So I think it's it's not really fair to say either way, honestly. Um, but I also, you know, I think it, it kind of all goes back to what you're telling people, um, you know, and I, I, I like to focus on here's the motion that I want you to be able to get into more so than here's the motion I want you to stay in all day. Yeah, there's some hard facts that can't be ignored in terms of slouchy. Like it, it's known that if you're very kyphotic, you're going to have reduced rotation of the neck and it's going to promote rounded shoulders so there's some hard facts in terms of the biomechanics that you can't ignore but a lot of these research people are just pushing oh it can't cause pain so it's okay and then saying people think it's okay to be in that forward head posture for all day long and then they're it's saying oh this isn't the reason of my pain when if we just again even with the stretching we just promote and educate differently it can have a really long lasting impact on the way people learn to move completely agree yeah it's uh it's all about just what you're what you're telling people and just getting you know i think it's you focus on so many of these minute details when if you just try and move better understand how your body's supposed to move it wants to move and and move a little bit more i think a lot of these things start to fall in place without just uh arguing over different variables and trying to you know use literature to back up your point of view one more question for you before we finish up this awesome conversation. What would be your best advice for the deskbound population? People who want to start moving better or they're working on mobility and their thoracic spine isn't giving them any more range of motion or they just want to stay more active throughout the day? Yeah, I always say kind of start small. So I think a lot of people go wrong if, you know, if they're in a desk job, I think they think that they just need to make all of the changes in one week or one day. And I like to, to at least start with telling people, make a small goal. So whether it's just you've, you've found an exercise, whether it's if you're sitting in a chair, you're doing some, some pelvic tilts or you're doing you know, different like thoracic extension over a chair, start small where you set a little timer and you're, you know, every hour or two, you're doing a couple of reps of those. And then you get into a habit of that and that's, then you, you're standing up for a few minutes at a time. So I think starting small and starting realistic 
is is the key to doing that and just realize that it takes time you know you've most people have kind of tended towards certain positions of sitting and and slouching forward for a long time so it's not going to be one week until you feel like you're 100 percent, you know with full movement so i think that's kind of where i like to start with is making kind of some small tangible goals is you know something realistic something attainable and then once that becomes a little more normal every day then you just you add you keep adding things and so i think that's it kind of goes back to successful goal setting is be realistic and attainable with it and be pretty specific and um so i like to start small kind of knowing why i'm doing that exercise and you know set a timer and do it regularly because the consistency is where you really make the effects and so you know if you do three sets at night that's it you know and you try and instead of spreading it out through the day you're going to have a little bit less of an impact than if you uh you know spread that out through the day and you actually had a little more consistency with your movement yeah i really like how you're talking about the consistency for me i know my areas that that i have trouble moving like my ankle dorsiflexion is limited and i like to stretch my lats a lot because i do a lot of like pulling and pushing work so i find i once you have the routine for example every night before bed i do some some kind of wedge work dorsiflexion for my ankle, some eversion, inversion, just kind of getting it moving. And then the next day I'll try to load it a little bit, whether it be some like more passive stretching at night and more kind of the one you showed me a few years back, the, the band around the ankle distraction with some load in the kneeling position. So I just kind of build a routine. I know what I need to work on. And I just kind of throw it, make the habit of going through that. It's a part of my lifestyle. And that way, once it becomes a habit, you can really be consistent. That's when you start to notice the results, especially with all the mobility work and the stretching. Yeah, that's it, man. It's just, it's about being consistent and you've kind of found, you know, you found a couple of things and you don't need to throw 35 things at it. You know, find find two or three things that are, that target the area you want to target and are getting, getting you that result and uh, just stay consistent with it. You know, you don't have to change it up every week. You don't have to add 16 new exercises. It's really just find the times of day that you can do it stick with it, stay consistent, and then you start to notice that change. And then from there, you can progress as you need to. But I think people get where they want to just do it all at once or just change it up too frequently. And um, yeah, like you said, find those one or two that you that you like, you can do, and stick with it. It's funny because a lot of my clients, like I'll give them their, their personalized mobility routine based off their assessment. They'll be like, well, this is it. They're like, I thought it'd be like an hour of stretching. And they'll be confused, but then they'll go through it and they'll be like, they'll really start to see the results because it's so specific to what they need versus going through an hour yoga class of stretches that might not be what your body needs. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, in the end, you're kind of looking for a long-term solution and something that's manageable. And if it's an hour every day, you know, as soon as the newness wears off, that hour, hour a day is going to go out the window, you know, like life kick, life kicks in and you know, you're not going to be able to dedicate that much time. So I think you're right on. You've got to, you've got to pick out what's the most bang for your buck. What's the most benefit and uh, focus those. And, and then that's, that's going to be where you're going to get the most results because you can stick with it. So for those who are still listening, uh, Adam has this awesome book for shoulder mobility and how you can assess it and how you can improve your mobility. So definitely check that out. If you're interested in a lot of the topics we talked about today on thoracic extension, I'm getting the shoulders moving. He's got the free book on his website, so he's going to let you know where you can grab that. Yeah, if you're uh, if you're listening to this, you can either go to theptinitiative.com or just go to my face or sorry my Instagram page the at the PT Initiative, 
and I've got a link there in my bio and it's got a, it's a, it's got the free ebook and then a couple other things on there. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a free ebook. It's about 20 pages, kind of just outlines what's going on in your shoulder, what muscles are there, what they're supposed to do. And then I go through some things to kind of like some progressions that you can go through to get them moving and get them a little bit more strong and stable. So totally free, just, uh, head over to that link at, on my Instagram page or at the PT initiative and, um, dot com and you can uh get that totally for free yeah it totally encompasses everything adam has talked about today there's a big educational component in the book so you're definitely getting a lot of value from that also post links to all his social media platforms thanks so much for joining us on episode nine we'll have to have you back for another conversation soon i appreciate it david I had fun and uh yeah let's do it soon